everybody. Good evening. Um, Y'all look great, all cozy and everything. It's fall. It is fall. Rachel's happy. Uh, thank you, Katie, for the one wonderful introduction. When she says that we butt heads all the time, uh, it is very true. We used to even more. We've learned how to be friends now, so it's good. Um, but she's awesome. Um, it's good to be back together. After John was here last week, that was awesome. Hearing from him, his wealth of knowledge and stories, it's uh, so good. The Lord's done so much through him. Uh, he's allowed John to see so much of the world. Um, it's so cool. If I had a life like his, you know, in, in 50 years, I would not be complaining. That is a, such a sweet life. Um, the Lord's shown him a lot. Um, so let's get started. Um, so the past few weeks, we've kind of been slowly going through, um, going through slowly, um, this, uh, this series called The Upside Down Kingdom, right? Um, and it's from the Sermon on the Mount which is the first public address that Jesus, when he was in the flesh, gave to the people that he was hanging out with while he was on this earth. Um, So why do we call it the upside-down kingdom? Because the things that in uh, the upside-down kingdom Jesus presented were completely contradictory to what the world at that time and still today says should be values of our lives, right? They're completely opposite. Um, the Beatitudes, why are they, they called the Beatitudes? They're called the Beatitudes because, like Jordan showed us, they're not things that we do, but they're characteristics that we should be. They're qualities and character that the Christian should have about his life, right? Um, so Beatitudes, Upside Down Kingdom, Jordan showed us week one. First step, being poor in spirit, right? In order to be poor in spirit, we have to trust Jesus. The way that we do that is to empty our cups and allow the Lord to fill them up so that his will can be fulfilled in our lives, right? Week two, which was after Winky, right? Yeah. That was awesome, having Winky. Um, would you guys say a prayer for him? He's not doing too uh, well health-wise, so be praying for him. Um, you can find him on Facebook, see what's going on more with that. But, yeah, just be praying for him. Um, Sean showed us, right, that in order um, to be happy, we have to be sad, doesn't really make much sense until he showed us that um, the way we need to be sad is actually mourning the sin that is in our lives so that through that mourning, we ask for forgiveness, and then Jesus extends that forgiveness to us, which in turn restores relationship with him, ending up us being happy, right? So sweet. So poor in spirit, mourning, which brings us to this week's beatitude. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Should be up there. Maybe not. Oh, oh, there it is. Sweet. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. <laughs> what the heck is meekness? Anyone else? Oh, three people don't know what it means. This is a waste of time. Um, but uh, seriously, though, um, who uses the word meek in their everyday cat- uh, vocabulary? Two people. And Micah, three. Um, I I didn't know what this word meek means, and I'm still hopefully going to be able to explain it, what it actually means tonight. Did a lot of studying. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this, but we really don't know what this word means on on the first time that we read it. And so I'm going to help us understand that so we can find out what Jesus means by inheriting the earth as well. 
This beatitude has an essential difference from the two that we've already covered, being poor in spirit and mourning, because those two affect primarily our relationship with the Lord, whereas meekness has an added quality of affecting our relationship with other people. Um, And we'll see that in a second. But um, as we go through tonight, um, I want you to just ask the Lord to speak to you through the words that I say, um, because that's what we all have to do with everything that Jesus tells us. And because we're going through this, um, we want to see what truth is in this statement, because Christian or not, I'm not going to assume everyone in here is a Christian. The things that Jesus says, and they've stood the test of time, they're true, they always have been, and they always will be. So for us to pay attention and to want to understand what he says about our lives and our relationships with other people, which will, unless we live in the middle of nowhere, last forever, the rest of our lives, we will have relationships with people. The things that he says about them are important. So let's pray real quick, and then we can get into the stuff. Father God, thank you, Lord, for um, just tonight and everything that you uh, have prepared for us, God. Lord, would you open our hearts, God, to hear what you want to say to us, Jesus. Lord, would you help us be willing and ready to receive it so that we can um, respond to it how you want us to respond to it, Jesus. Speak through me, God. Uh, We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Sweet. So is Ian here? Ian Covert. Covert? Covert? Covert. I don't even know how to say his last name. All right. He was at a meeting at 8 o'clock, so he told me he might not be here. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the passage for us tonight. It'll be up there. You can follow along if you want to. Mark 3, 13 through 19 is our first passage. Here we go. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To him he gave the na- to them the, he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The next one is Luke 9, 51 through 54. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent his messengers on ahead, who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him, because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John, the sons of thunder, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Sweet. Um, So James and John, sons of thunder, these guys who just asked Jesus if they wanted to pray for fire to fall on this city for not allowing Jesus to stay a night with them. Airbnb was closed, and they want this whole city to burn, right? That seems kind of intense, because it is. Um, So for those of you who are familiar with um, the New Testament, James and John are a pretty big deal, right? As far as disciples goes, um, they are two of three disciples, along with Peter, that are closest to Jesus, and we'll see a little bit of their lives um, in their relationship with him um, as we go through tonight. 
Um, but just to uh, kind of get like a like a background on these guys, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, um, they were both fishermen. Um, they were also pretty good fishermen. We know from other places in the Bible that their their father had both servants and they had partners, two of which were Simon and Peter. So these guys are fishermen. They're the sons of a probably pretty wealthy dad, and their mother, Salome, says later in the Bible that she helped support Jesus from her own means, which means she probably had a job of her own and was able to use a lot of that money following Jesus to support him financially, right? So these guys are kind of rich kids. Um, They're really good at what they do. Um, They probably will get a pretty good inheritance, you know, upon their father and mother's um, deaths. And, um, right, they're just, they're, um, they got it pretty made, right? I mean, in the future, they'll, they'll know what's going to, what's going to happen. They're going to keep being uh, fishermen. But in regards to their nickname, Sons of Thunder, um, I think Jesus, when he calls them this, um, is pointing out um, actually qualities in their personalities or qualities in their character, right? Uh, we can see from that second verse, right, they want to call down fire on this whole city, right, just for not allowing Jesus to stay with them. Um, they're kind of trigger happy, uh, to say the least. But, uh, I mean, just think about it. Have you guys ever been driving along the road with someone in the passenger seat and somebody cuts you off and then your friend's like, oh, hey, man, you got to speed up. You got to speed up right next to him. I got this rock in my pocket. It's, you know, it's pretty big baseball size. Here it is right here. You know, it's like this huge thing. And I'm going to throw this rock at their window and bust it and we can drive off. What? No, dude. Like, they just, they probably did that on accident. You don't need to throw a baseball-sized rock at their window. They just, it was probably an accident. And why do you have a rock in your pocket anyways, right? But you know it's a dumb question because he always talks about how he's busting out people's windows with rocks when he's driving. So it's just, these. this is these guys, right? They just, they're looking for a fight. You know, they're probably pretty, um, pretty just antsy, right? Because they're fishermen, which means they're on boats all day with friends that they probably don't talk to because they're trying to get the fish to come close to their boat. So they don't move. <laughs> they don't talk. Maybe to the fish, you know, James or John or Andrew, Simon, they might at some point, I can just imagine them like jumping out of the boat to like catch a fish just to like spice things up, right? Like nothing ever happens to these guys. When Jesus calls them to follow him, they're probably like, yes, See you, mom and dad. I'm out of here. <laughs> Let's go, you know, see some stuff. You know, some stuff happens, some stuff and some things. Um, but, uh, but anyways, right, yeah? So these guys, um, they are looking for some action, for some excitement. Um, they are the people that when, you know, you suggest something to do, hey, let's go eat, let's go to the movies. They're like, yeah, let's go right away. Because for their whole lives, their parents wouldn't let them do anything. <laughs> this is these guys. They are ready to hang out. As I was thinking about the Sons of Thunder, it made me think about two other brothers. Who has heard of Connor and Murphy McManus? Those guys right there. Y'all know who those are? Anybody? Have y'all seen Boondock Saints? Anybody? Pretty old movie. If you haven't seen it, um, don't worry. 
Uh, I don't know if I should suggest it. It's it's kind of brutal. It's got a lot of cussing and violence, but overall, it's okay. Um, but basically, <laughs> um, the Boondock Saints quality of movie great, quality of character and content not so great. <laughs> but uh, but they are they are two brothers. Uh, what who are these guys? They are Irish brothers that live in downtown Boston. And one day, oops, I'm tripping. Uh, one day they uh, come across this this mob, basically like mafia, you know, like throwdown, and they accidentally kill one of the mob bosses, right? And so they, to be safe, like turn themselves in, get arrested, spend the night in d- jail, so they can like cover themselves from like the rest of the mob that's probably out to get them at this point. And then when they're the released the next day, the whole town is like, oh, these guys are heroes. You know, they're killing the mob. And so they take it like as their responsibility to continue to go incognito and kill the rest of the mafia, right? All the other mafias that are in Boston, right? Pretty crazy, super ridiculous. There's another picture up there. <laughs> So I just thought it looks like uh, James and John and Jesus. <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, that's Connor and Murphy, and then Rocco uh, is their friend, who's super funny. I I feel like it's a comedy, even though it's like action thriller category. It should be a comedy, but anyways, this is these guys. Um, they do it like in the name of truth um, and justice, right? It's on it's on their wrists, tattoos, and so they're like you know vigilantes that are trying to save Boston, right? So this is James and John. Sons of Thunders, trying to, like, you know, take the role of judgment for people. So, what does calling fire down on cities and being vigilantes have to do with meekness? James and John and these characteristics represent meekness, right? (laughs) No, Uh, this is not what Jesus meant when he said, I want you to be meek. Um, It means actually quite the opposite. The best definition for meekness is gentleness. Gentleness. Meekness means gentleness. A lot of you guys are probably like, oh, heck no. (laughs) I'm not about to make myself gentle. You know, even if I am a Christian, I'm not going to be gentle. Well, I pretty much had the same reaction when I saw that meekness means gentleness. I was like, no way. This means me being soft and quiet and wimpy and and girly right no offense girls but if you tell a guy he's gentle he probably won't like it um and don't ever tell him to be to be gentle because then he'll probably just get more rough um but yeah meekness means gentleness so what does gentleness mean to explain it actually going to talk about zoe zoe is my niece katie goody is my sister if you didn't know that there you go um, Jordan Goody, my brother from another mother, right? Um, and uh, Michael Scott, he's great. Uh, but anyways, so Zoe is my niece. Um, sometimes when I'm with Katie and Zoe, uh, Katie, <laughs> Zoe will like, you know, whatever. She'll start to hit me on the head or something that I think is kind of funny, right? I don't stop it because I'm her uncle and I can get away with things like that, right? Um, but Katie will very quickly say, gentle, Zoe, be gentle, Right? And, uh, and she'll say it just like that. Um, and it's like, man, like, I was thinking about this. This came to mind when I was thinking about what gentleness means, right? So when Katie is telling Zoe to be gentle, it's when Zoe is using a lot of force or strength or being too rough 
with whatever she's doing, and Katie wants her to not use as much force, right? So the fact that someone has to tell you to be gentle necessitates that there is actually strength present there. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, To explain it differently, here are some words that are opposites, right? Evil and good, darkness, light, silence, sound, static, which means not moving, and motion, right? So these are all words that we could, for the most part, pretty much agree without being too philosophical or getting into it. And you can talk to me about how they're different or opposite later. But if we all agree that they're opposite, the, the distinguishing similarity between all of these things evil and good, darkness and light, is that the first is um, is a reality when there is an absence of the second, right? So evil exists when good does not. Darkness exists when light does not, right? And the other two. So the opposite of strength is what? Weakness, exactly. Yeah, so the opposite of strength is not gentleness. Gentleness necessitates strength, right? Everyone clear on that? Just wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page because this is huge for where we're going. So gentleness is not weakness, but strength controlled and moderated. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Meekness for the first part, is strength controlled and moderated. Sounds kind of cliche, but being meek ain't weak, right? KB? Nate knows. Nate knows what I'm talking about. So back to James and John, right? Jesus is talking about being gentle. They're here, and they're like listening to Jesus saying, you know, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And these guys are ready to, like, throw fire down on this city, right? Whether this was before or after Jesus said this, I'm not quite sure. But still, their desire to, like, have this, you know, just basically uncontrolled desire to, to bring judgment whenever it needs to come, right, on this one city, specifically in that example, um, how did they see Jesus exemplify gentleness, right? If you read through the Gospels, you see tons of places where Jesus was opposed by so many different people. When he's opposed by the Pharisees, they accuse him all the time of doing things that aren't actually true. He doesn't blow up on them. He doesn't lay out their entire, you know, he doesn't read their mail, right? He doesn't say, well, actually, you've done this and this and this and this, and if you compare yourself to me, then you're a terrible person, right? He doesn't read their mail. He doesn't allow himself to act upon the power that he has, right, in that situation. Also, someone who is gentle is going to have a lot of kids around them, right? And we know that Jesus was a huge favorite of the kids. He said, let the little children come to me. Someone who is rough and forceful, kids don't like those kind of people. They stay away from them. But we know from Jesus' life, and James and John saw this, right, kind of their transformation. We're going to see how they're transformed through the life of Jesus throughout this whole night. 
Um, or, you know, like James and John wanted them to do, he didn't blow everyone up, <laughs> right? He could have done that. You know, he could have said, well, you guys aren't, you know, following me, so you guys can just take a hike, and then the whole city gets swallowed into the earth, right? That, that didn't happen. He never did that. Um, so Jesus restrains his power time and time again in front of these guys, um, specifically for tonight, so that they can see what gentleness lived out looks like right so restrained power jesus did it he's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done so if you want to see more of how jesus demonstrated gentleness you guys need to read the gospels matthew mark luke and john as you're reading it if you want to do like not a gentleness study but just like um kind of pay attention to how jesus modeled gentleness ask yourself in every situation where he's opposed by somebody how could have Jesus responded in power in this instance? And you'll probably see that he could have done a lot of damage to a lot of people that wouldn't have been any good for him or the people he was trying to love, and it wouldn't represent the character of God either. And so he withheld that power or that knowledge. How many times has, a, has somebody said something to you and you know you could have just owned them, right? <laughs> not, like a, not like in a fist fight, but it's like, dude, you are so dumb right now. I, I could totally make you feel like the smallest person in the world. I feel terrible even talking about it because I know I've had these thoughts before, right? Um, these things happen to us, whether it's anger um, or, uh, or passion. I think the things that were in James and John, like passion and zeal, right, and excitement, these things weren't bad. They just needed to be filtered and controlled correctly. Right, so when Jesus calls them the sons of thunder, it could actually be a good thing, right? Um, but so, what are what are areas in our lives that like require gentleness? Um, there are actually a lot of verses that talk about gentleness in the context of moderating these desires, right, or these passions. So, think about Morgantown. Sexual promiscuity, right? These are people who have not learned how to control <laughs> their passions sexually. And so whatever it is that they're doing, they, they just allow themselves to take part in all of it because they don't have this aspect of control in their lives in that area, right? What about mental? Just wandering thoughts. Um, how many times have we, like that? what I just mentioned about like wanting to completely own someone in a conversation, these thoughts just like run through our mind, right? And we, we miss the point where we can stop and say, no, I'm not going to think about this stuff because it's just um, separating me from this person. It's just adding these thoughts that are terrible for my mind to be developing, right? Um, just thirst and hunger, gluttony, <laughs> that's what that is. When we can't control this, right? So, and I know I mentioned gentleness being a control of power, um, but gentleness is actually, in a sense, like moderation of, of a lot of areas in our life. Um, and I do want to read one verse really quick, Galatians five thirteen through 26. It's a lot, but it's like two parts. And so I'm going to use one, the second part, in response to the other. This is what it says. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. 
For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you will not you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, and this is what we're paying attention to. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit, the, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Right? Paul lays out this huge list of what it looks like to have our passions and our desires out of control. Right? And we see it every single day on campus, on high street, on the news, this list of things is all over the world because people have not surrendered to the Lord and they are not full with the Holy Spirit, which, to clarify, I'm not saying that we can do this on our own. This isn't a self-help speech. This isn't like a self-help, you know, like, oh, you know, just take control of your life and you'll be okay. You know, that's not what I'm saying uh, because Paul there and many other places says that control over self is only possible as we are yielded to the Lord and as his spirit enables us to actually have control over our lives, right? So when we trust him with this stuff, um, he gives us the strength to control it as well as in the future potentially fulfill a lot of, if not all of these desires that we have, right? Hunger is a good thing. He doesn't want us to starve. He's going to give us what we need. Thirst, he doesn't want us to, to to be parched, right? He's going to give us things to drink. All of these things. He's going to uh, increase our thought life, um, our social lives. He's going to give us friends. He's going to surround us with people, right? These things that we need, if we surrender them to him, then he will help us take care of them. Um, so to explain this um, aspect of meekness a little bit further, uh, we've talked about gentleness, but there's another component of it that's necessary for us to actually be meek. And uh, we're going to get a little help from Winky, and this is what he says. Should be up there. There it is. A stallion is free, but wild and untamed. It lives for its own pleasure. It makes its own laws and runs with the, with the herd. One day, a new master captures it. He begins to break down its proud, stubborn will. This takes time and love, but one day the horse is broken in. It lost none of its power or energy, but once wasted force is now under control and can be directed into useful outlets. The horse is under the will of its master. It is meek, dynamite under control. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is basically a yielded will towards God. 
That's awesome. Thank you, Winky. He does such a good job of making things so understandable. So all of these passions and desires um, and abilities or skills or whatever it is that we have, right, that the Lord's given us, once we yield them to the will of the Father, then he will be able to use them for the kingdom, right? So that's what we're doing. So that's the second part of meekness is yieldedness towards God. Meekness is yieldedness towards God. What is yieldedness? I'll define that real quick. Uh, Yieldedness is surrendering oneself to another of more power or authority. So So to surrender is to give up or to submit to another who's more powerful, right? That's what we're looking at. So we're surrendering and submitting our will towards God. That's the second essential part of meekness. Uh, I'm not saying this is an easy thing to do by any means. Giving up control over our lives is probably the most difficult thing that anybody ever does, right? Because we want to maintain control over our lives because we think that, if man, if I am in control of everything that I do, then I also have control of my present, my relationships, my money, my job, my school, you know, everything that I have going on in my life, um, as well as the future, right? And to give all of that up to somebody else is so scary, right? I mean, it's some of us um, have given it to the Lord. Some of us haven't. Some of us have to continue to do that in certain areas of our lives, and it's really tough. But when you know who you're giving it up to, if it's the Lord, then it gets a lot easier. So that's what Winky's talking about. That's what yieldedness is, to give control of our lives over to Jesus so that he can do with our lives what was meant the whole time. I mean, if you think about it, we all yield our wills to something, right? Whether it's money or our friends or our future or our academics or sex or social lives or the internet or president or whatever it is, right? Traveling the world. Nice. Want to do that? Um we all yield our wills to somebody or something. We all worship something or someone, right? And because we do, we might as well go ahead and do ourselves a favor and the people around us and yield it to the Lord because he can, trust, he can be trusted with it. Like Winky talked about, he's the only one qualified to rule our lives. So therefore, for tonight, he's the only one that we should actually ever want to yield our wills to, Right? So going back to James and John, right? So how did they see Jesus exemplify a yielded will towards God? Well, just looking at the last week of his life, when Jesus is about to go to the cross to die on the cross for our sins, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas, who betrayed him, brings the guards of of the priests to him there, and there's a few of his disciples there. We know that John is there, Peter's there, and I'm not sure how many of the other disciples are there, but at least John is there, right? So let's focus on him. When Judas comes up to betray Jesus, he gives him a kiss on the cheek as a friend would do, and then he turns him in. Jesus surrenders himself, right? He gets arrested. 
And John is like, what's going on? Like, Jesus, you can own these guys, right? And even to this point, after seeing him surrendered and gentle, right, and not overbearing throughout his whole life, he's still probably surprised that Jesus just gave up, right? (laughs) Jesus isn't supposed to give up. He's a hero. But he just gave up. He surrendered, you know, to Judas and the guards. So he goes, right? Well, that's, it doesn't end there, right? John follows him to where Jesus was accused and convicted of whatever he did wrong, which was claiming to be the son of God or, you know, breaking one of the temple laws or whatever they, you know, wanted to convict him for. And Jesus didn't say anything in response to their accusations, right? And John's watching all this. He's like, what's going on? He goes before Pilate. John probably followed him there too, right? And then Pilate asks him a ton of questions, and then he brings out Barabbas, a thief, and Jesus. And then Pilate says, who do you want people for me to release to you? They say Barabbas, right? And John's like, what is going on? This whole time he's freaking out because he knows Jesus can do something, but he's not, right? He's He's just taking it all. And then they see, and then he sees Jesus you know, condemned to death on a cross. He probably follows him the whole way because we know that he was at the cross when Jesus died because Jesus gives John responsibility over taking care of Mary, right? So John goes through this terrible, you know, day and a half, maybe even just 12 hours, right, of seeing Jesus just surrender and surrender and surrender, not fight back. And after everything that he had seen, in his life up to this point, it still doesn't make any sense. But what happens? He sees Jesus die, and then three days later, when Mary comes running saying, the Lord's not there, this is what I saw. I didn't see his body. John and Peter run to the tomb from however far away they were to see if what Mary said was true. And they see that, in fact, Jesus' body wasn't there. And over the next 40 days, Jesus appears to the disciples, right? And then he spends the next 40 days with them, ascends to heaven, and sends them his Holy Spirit, right? So John, it clicks, right? He's like, oh man, this is what being yielded to God looks like. Jesus trusted the Lord, the Father, all the way up to the point of death and beyond, right? And John, who originally, you know, just won some excitement, right? And, and James, too, right? Because we know that he was still following Jesus on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, right? These guys, their lives were transformed, right? And this Sons of Thunder name that Jesus gave to them, it wasn't just, hey, you guys are kind of a ragtag, you know, ready for anything bunch of guys, right? No, it's like he pointed out. He called out the passion and the zeal and the strength and the excitement in these guys. And what was first uncontrolled and unyielded and sporadic, right, and very potentially harmful, that was turned in to them being two of the founding fathers of his faith, right? These guys were leaders in the church. James, it says in Acts, he was the first martyr of the Christian church. He went throughout his entire life. Man, how many people did he lead to Jesus? What kind of power was given to him for the Lord, right? 
What kind of friends were he surrounded with by the time that he died for the sake of the cross, right? What, what parts of the world did Jesus allow James and John to see once they had surrendered their wills to Jesus and gave everything else up and said, not my way, but your way, just like they saw Jesus do his whole life and ultimately when he died on the cross, right? Their lives were transformed because they saw Jesus gentle, meek, and mild, right? Hopefully gentle, meek, and mild now have a different meaning to it, right? It's not wimpy. Jesus isn't wimpy. He's not a wimp. Um, He's actually, in fact, he resisted all sorts of temptation. Everything we've been through, he overcame it all, right? He gave his life over to the Lord, to the Father. He yielded his will to him. And because of that, because we can look at Jesus' life, and that's one reason I think it was so difficult for me to understand um, what this word meek meant was because there's only two people in the Bible that says they were ever meek. One was Moses, and we know what his life looked like. He was a man completely surrendered to God, led the Israelites all the way through the desert for 40 years, didn't even get to see the promised land, but he was surrendered to God. And then there was Jesus, who also says that he was meek. And so if we look at the life of Jesus, if we look at the transformed lives of James and John, John, who, by the way, went on to be one of the church leaders as well, and also died of old age on an island. That's pretty crazy, right? He's the only disciple, he's the only early church leader, sorry, um, that, uh, that didn't die a martyr's death. And I feel like that's because he walked with Jesus And he had good relationships, right? So we have gentle and we have yielding our will to God. So what does this have to do with inheriting the earth? Well, I mentioned it with the life of Jesus and with the friends that I believe James and John had with them. Psalm 24, verse 1, says that the earth earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The people and all who dwell in it, right? That means everything on this earth belongs to Jesus. Everything on this earth belongs to God. So when we surrender our lives to the Lord, who has all control and all power and all ownership of everything in this world, at that point, he is allowed to entrust us who look like him with everything in this world, right? The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, that verse that we read, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what a Christian should look like. This is the kind of person that Jesus can trust with the earth. This is the kind of person that Jesus will give everything that we need to and everything that we can be trusted with once we have proven through character, not the things necessarily that we've done through character, that he can trust us and wants to give us all that, more than we can ask or imagine, right? That's what the Bible says. So inheriting the earth basically just comes from a life surrendered to God and through learning how to control our passions and desires that the Lord has given us. Katie and Charles, I can come up. Um, so the best way to learn how to be meek 
um, I think, really, is just, guys, you got to spend time with Jesus. He's the only person that was always meek. He's the only person that was completely surrendered to the will of God forever. He's the only person who had all authority and power and right to do anything he wanted, but chose instead to surrender it all to the will of the Father so that he, at last, could die on the cross for our sins so that we could have a relationship with him. So I want to end with this verse passage. So Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what a life surrendered to the Father looks like. It can be tough. But if Jesus did it, we can do it. He did it so he could demonstrate for us. So I don't know if there's any areas of your life that um, or I want us now um, through worship and, and just as they're playing and before the night's over um, and potentially even, you know, further on from tonight. Um, ask the Lord to show us um, the parts of our hearts, the parts of our lives that are not yielded to him. The things in our lives that we have not surrendered to God. If it's a relationship, if it's our academics, whatever it might be, there's a lot of things it could be. And that's up to the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what he wants control over. Like I said, he loves us. He's the only qualified one to rule our lives. So I think it's most wise if we give complete control to him so that through that, he will give us everything that we need and more and the things that we love. Those will be taken care of too. So I'm going to pray real quick and then uh, we can worship. Jesus, thank you, God, for uh, 
Uh, just speaking to us, God, and uh, coming down to this earth, Jesus, to to articulate the necessity, the necessary qualities of what it looks like to be in your kingdom, Jesus. Thank you, God, that is so much different from that of this world, God, this broken world, uh, this crazy world, Jesus, Lord, we're grateful that you have enabled us to hear from you, God. Lord, would you put on our hearts, Holy Spirit, would you point out the areas of our lives that we need to surrender to you tonight, Jesus, where we don't want to be like a wild horse that resists Jesus and, and, and doesn't want to be tamed, God, we want to be obedient to our new master, which is you, Jesus. Would you help us, God? Would you help us trust you? Lord, just speak to us, God. Thank you so much, God. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit, and we need you. In your name we pray. Amen.